August the 8th, 1977, I surrendered to preach the gospel. God had been stirring my heart. I knew I was going into occupational ministry, but uh, I was uh, leaning towards music. And in fact, my, when I began college in 1976, that was my declared major. Uh, most all of my classes, except for my requirements, uh, were in music. And uh, there's a reason for that, because I had uh, some ability in that. And because of that, there's security in that. And so you, you kind of flee to your security. One of the things that the Lord does is He gets you out of your, your safety zone so that you will depend upon Him. And so uh, in August, August 8, 1977... I surrendered my life fully to the Lord. Actually, that happened in July this month of 1975. And then in August of 1977, I yielded my life to, to preach. And then a few days after that, I preached my first sermon. I had taught the Bible before, but I never preached a sermon at the downtown rescue mission. I still have that sermon uh, in a file over in the office next door, and a young man was saved there. His name was Reggie. I dealt with him after the service. They had a meal, and uh, the requirement was you couldn't eat until you came to the service. And most of those guys, to be honest with you, were there with hungry stomachs. And so they came, you know, to the service because they had to. But Reggie was there on the second row, and his heart was hungry for, for Christ. And he got saved that afternoon. Well, anyhow, uh, when I preached that, that day, I, I had a very a full heart and a sincere heart, but I really didn't know much about preaching. And so then I went to Bible college about a month later uh, in Chattanooga, and I took a, a course, uh, two hours in, in the fall and two in the spring, called homiletics. Uh, wonderful teacher. Uh, named Mark Hollingsworth, who was a great help to me. Homiletics is called The Science of Preaching. And there I learned how to write and develop and build sermons. And about the same time, in September of 1977, I began to work in a little church in Dayton, Tennessee. That's where I met Paula. And so every week, in addition to my schoolwork, I was responsible for a Sunday school lesson and then uh, a little Bible study Sunday night before the evening service. We used to call it training union. I don't know why they call it the union part. Anybody remember training union? A bunch of old people do. The young people don't remember. But we, we had called it. So I, I had those two preparations. And I began to apply those principles of homiletics to those uh, times of responsibility and those disciplines. And I began to, to grow. In fact, one of the, the life-changing classes, not the only one, that I had in my Bible college days was homiletics. I'm very indebted to, to Mark Collinsworth, and we still stay in touch. And so I began to, to grow and develop, uh, hopefully. I think I did. feel like I did. And my ability uh, to understand how to, how to preach the Word of God, how to open the Bible, and read a passage and find out what was in it, and then uh, distill the principles and be faithful to the text and deal with the text and bring something forth 
uh, as far as what God said what would help us on a day-to-day basis. Worked in uh, another church in Madison, Alabama, then went to the Washington, D.C. area in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, full-time ministries there, responsible for young people, family ministries, and was teaching and preaching some, and so still presenting the Word of God. Then I came here in 1985, and then I became the pastor in 1986, May of 1986. And uh, during that season, uh, I was responsible for four preparations a week, uh, three on Sunday. I had a Sunday school class. I had the auditorium class, which I taught for many years until Gary Adams came. And uh, I found out he had had a, a, a background where he had taught and asked him to help me with that and later gave him that class. But I taught that class, and then I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night. Those were three fresh preparations. And then I had a preparation on Wednesday night of, of Bible study. And I loved that. That was before my, uh, my health challenges and so forth, and I, I couldn't do that. I wish I still could do that. But uh, I feel like during those, those times... During those phases of ministry, when I first began, and I was sincere, I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but I was making some efforts, and then I began to get some some teaching, some information, some training, and then I began to apply that training, and then I began to do it more and more until I was able to do that with some efficiency and hopefully some effectiveness. Now, presenting the gospel has the same pattern. Uh, You're going to go through some phases, and they're going to be different for different people. Now, it's not memorizing a script. Now, there may be some things you want to memorize. I've memorized some things that I use. I think a lot of people don't want to uh, be a witness. It's not the only reason, but they don't try because they feel like, well, I can't memorize things, or I'm intimidated, or they feel like it's like, a sales pitch. It's anything but. Uh, one of my favorite definitions for evangelism, personal evangelism, is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all it is. It's just telling somebody else uh, who helped you, the Lord Jesus, where you found forgiveness, you found sustenance, you found meaning, you found life. And that's where the enthusiasm, that's where the, the joy comes from. And then we, we make efforts and we feel like a failure sometimes. And I think sometimes, not always. Sometimes it's the leadership's fault because they make it kind of a all or nothing thing. That if you go out and you do not get someone to the point where they'll pray to receive Christ. Then we feel like, well, we, we haven't done our part. And so it's discouraging. Or you can't even strike up the conversation to eternal things. Uh, this is not really a lesson on how to present the gospel, which is important. But, um, you know, one of the keys to that is transitioning from the temporal to the eternal. You always want to be on the alert for that. How can I, how can I transition this from temporal to eternal things? And so uh, sometimes you can't even get there. You walk away just feeling, I, I just, I'm not very good at this. And the devil just browbeats you and just felt, well, I'm just not any good. I'm just not going to do this. I'll leave it to the experts. 
And that's why the church is weak. That's why churches don't grow as we leave it to the experts when that is not God's will. Uh, the experts are not the staff or anything but. I, I don't want to use a, a Western motif or a Western metaphor, but we're not the hired guns. Uh, we have our own responsibilities, our own neighbors, our own friends, hopefully. Uh, not in an ivory tower, separated from people. We're engaged with lost people. And, and so are you. I, I've had people that would come and say, would you, would you come speak with my neighbor? And I'm always kind, but I'll say, well, I will on one condition. Okay, what is that? And I said that you do first. You think they're going to listen to me, a stranger? They will shut me down quicker than anything. Uh, they want to hear from you. They, they watch your life. And uh, would you, I, I remember years ago, someone came and said, would you, would you come speak with my loved one? Well, tell me what's wrong, whether in the hospital or not expected to live long. I knew this person. I knew they'd grown up in church. They knew how to present the gospel. I said, are you intimidated? You don't know how to do that. I said, that, that's correct. I said, well, I'll do it on one condition. That's just what I told you. They were in this person's in the ICU unit. I see you unit. I said, I'll go up there. I'll go up there this week. But I'll go up there if you go first. And some of you may think this is cruel, but this is not cruel. Okay? I said, I'll go up there if you go up there first. You let me know when you went up there and you ask them. I said, because if I go up there, I'm a stranger. I don't know your loved one. And I'll be glad to do that for you. But if you're really interested in them being saved, they're going to listen to you. And I said, I'll be praying for you, and you let me know and how things go, and then I'll help you. I'll pray for you, and I will go, but I want you to go first. And so they, they did, and they called me, and I said, well, how did it go? And they broke down crying, said they got saved. They got saved. So many times we, we, don't, we don't ask. I remember when my, my uncle, my dad's brother, was in the hospital and he was not a skeptic, but he had met some Christians that weren't authentic, and he was suspicious, I'll put it that way. And, but he was scared. He had some heart issues. He was scared. He was nervous. And so the next day, he had a, some major heart surgery. So I went up the night before. He was my uncle. It's my uncle. I didn't call Tim. I didn't call somebody. It's my uncle. This is my and my family. This is my Jerusalem. This is my this is my deal. He's not going to listen to another pastor. He's going to listen to me. And so I went up to the hospital and sat down. And he had guests. And at that time they had visiting hours, like at nine. They were a little strict about them. And the people were there at eight thirty. I'm thinking, man, I wish you would hurry up and leave. You know, I got something important to talk to him about. Eight forty-five. I'm about five till nine. They left. And I'm just praying to God the nurse would just leave us alone for a few minutes. And so uh, they left. And I said, well, I, I just wanted to tell you I loved you. and I'll be praying for you tomorrow. He was very humbled, very humbled, which was unusual for him. Not that he was arrogant, but he, he was always had a say in something. And he said, well, I really appreciate it. 
And I said, but I got to know something. And then I, I began to cry, which I really didn't plan on doing. It's not something I turned on or faked. It was just from my heart. I said, I got to know something. I said, look, I, I don't think anything's going to happen, but these guys are good at what they're doing tomorrow. This something happens. If something happens, are you 100% sure that you know that you're going to go to heaven if something happens? And he said, yes. And I said, well, tell me about it. By now, it's a few minutes after nine. And he began to tell me this story. And he gave me a very specific date, a very clear, specific date. And I shared some scripture with him and hugged his neck, prayed with him. Went over to my daddy's house. I told him what I'd done. I didn't tell dad I was going up there. But told my daddy what I'd done. I said, Daddy, I said, do you know what happened at this time in his life? He said, I don't. I said, well, you know, most people, they just are real generic. But he was very specific about a time and a place, which is very, very unusual. That's that, that he had trusted Christ as his Savior. Needless to say, it brought great comfort to my dad's life. Well, he did make it. He did make it through the surgery. It's our responsibility. Evangelism, listen, is not an event. It's a process. Salvation is the event. Evangelism is a, listen, it is a series of things that we do that leads to the event. Now, I know legally, technically, it could be that there are some specific events that involve that. I understand that. But if you just see evangelism as an event, you're going to discourage because everybody you witness to is not going to get saved. In fact, you're not even going to get to open the conversation with a lot of people. And you're going to feel like, I'm not very good at this. That's how I feel sometimes. I'm not real good at this. But it's a process. It's not an event. And if you see it as a process, you realize, okay, um, that, was just, that was just one step. I'll get another opportunity. And if I don't, if I don't, somebody else will. This is a process. And then I will talk to somebody else, somebody else's mom, somebody else's dad, somebody else's neighbor. And within the kingdom of God, we're all working in this together. I've taught you this, this metaphor, it's agricultural metaphor, it's here in 1 Corinthians 3 of CPR, cultivate, plant, and reap. It's very clear here. Would you look at it? 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? Now, Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, who, who are we? It's men. And I love this. He says, we're but ministers. If you look at that word ministers, it just means humble servants. That's what it means. We're just simple men. We're just servants. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean ministers like pastors. It's not talking about an office. It's not what he means. I mean, we're just servants. We just carry water and fill ice tea glasses and help people. We're just ministers. Watch this. We are, we are servants by whom you believed. We, we helped you to faith. We weren't preachers. Yeah, we were apostles. Before we were apostles, we were ministers. We helped you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I remember I, I taught through... Corinthians several years ago and I came to this place and I'd never seen this before 
I believe when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everybody. There's a teaching today that's pervasive in many churches that says that Jesus didn't die for everybody. He just died for a select few. And I've never seen this before, but the Bible here says that who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I've never seen that before. That God has given to, to every person people to help them believe. That's what the Bible says. Now I'll continue here. Paul says, I planted, I cultivated. Apollos watered. He cultivated, we both cultivated, we planted. CP, cultivate, plant. And I have this underland, but it's God that gives the increase. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Evangelism is something that God does. God gives the increase. So then is neither he that planteth, nor neither he that watereth. So he says the same thing over again, but God that gives the increase. So two times in two verses, he reiterates the same idea. On planting, watering, and God gives the increase. In other words, take the pressure off. Now you have a responsibility, but you do your part. God will do his part. Now he that planteth. And he that watereth, now watch this, are one. You're on the same team. You both have a different role. You have a different function, but you're on the same team. He that watereth and he that plantereth, plant, plantereth, rubber baby buggy bumpers. He that plant, I didn't have that in homiletics. He that planteth and he that watereth are one. Now, would you pay attention to this? I'm going to come back to this later. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. What is that? Whether they plant or whether they water. You see, you may not, you may not win everybody, but you'll get a reward for where you are in the process or where you are uh, in, the, in the series of events. You may, they may not, you may not have them lead them to Christ, but you may help them to Christ. And God says you're on the team. And you will receive a reward for that. For we are laborers. I like this. We are laborers together with God. I like that. Different functions, different roles on the same team with the same importance. Let me highlight this again. I know I've done it before, but it's important. And I haven't. In fact, this is a sermon that I didn't finish about. Six weeks ago, Mother's Day came around and Father's Day and some things. And so I'm going to finish it today. First, you have cultivating, which is plowing the ground. Now, that's the ground of your heart, the ground of someone's heart. That's establishing a relationship with a person where they're receptive to the message of the gospel because of the life of the messenger. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The word glorify means to give a good opinion of. You give a good opinion of God because they, they see the way you live. Now, there's more to evangelism than that. But you destroy the gospel when you don't behave right. I was at a funeral recently, and a pastor got up to preach at it. And uh, 
There were several waiters there at the funeral. W-A-I-T-E-R-S at a restaurant. My son was there. And he told me later, he said, Dad, I didn't know that guy was a preacher. I said, oh, yeah, I, said, I knew he was. He said, well, all the waiters, we looked at each other and said, we just lifted our eyebrows. I said, why? Did, did he behave wrong? He said, no. So he said, he would come in, sit at the same table, and all these people that are lost, sitting with Jordan, they're all lost. They're sitting with Jordan, my son. He'd sit at a table for three hours and leave a dollar tip. And it'd be better not to leave anything to act like, you, at least to think you forgot, but to let them know that, oh, I did remember. And now you're at a funeral? Let your life so shine that men may, may see your poor tips and dishonor the Father. I, I don't think, I'm going to go to your church, but here's the bad part. I don't think I'm going to go to anybody's church. But it's not just tipping, it's just any, any, anything that has to do with Christianity. Cultivating is plowing the ground. Planting is sowing the seed. This is giving the gospel, giving the word of God, giving the gospel message in a clear way. Notice the way I phrase this. In a clear way. So the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. There's got to be a time. You see, people aren't saved by your life. They're saved by Christ's death. There's got to be a time when you give the gospel. When they know Jesus died for them. You've got to get to the point where you give them a tract, where you explain the gospel. My mom, I don't know if she still does it, but for many years, when my mother would pay her bills, she didn't do it electronically. She writes a check. She always puts a tract in there. She's gone to places before where she will, doctor's offices where she will be there, and she will see the tract that she had sent them. They pin it up. And she'd ask them, she'd say, where did you get that little piece of literature there? Oh, somebody sent it in an envelope. And they kept it and they put it up. They give the gospel. There's a lot of ways you can do that. And then there's, there's reaping, which is harvesting the crop. This is leading a person to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Based on what he did on the cross. Give them an opportunity to receive Jesus receive the gift of salvation. Now, I kind of illustrated this at the, the front about kind of the matter of phases. It's really not a good illustration, but kind of uh, about how I learned to preach. You know, early phase, I was kind of sincere. I stumbled at it, and but I, but I tried. And then I took a class on it, and I, just, I applied. That's the key. I, I just applied. I said, okay, I'm going to try. And I got better at it. But I just kept on plugging away, and, and that's just what I do now. It's just, that's my life. God has given me a certain, and some people are better than I am. In fact, a lot of people are. They're more effective, but that's okay. God has given me a, 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 my own field, and it's my responsibility. Four phases of evangelism. Phase one, you help people come to Christ. I brought a message on this. I'm not going to restate it but i talked about ways that you can help people come to christ this is cultivating the ground i gave you four ways that you can help people you can go back on the website there may be some cds back there on this message i don't know and listen to it if you weren't here and it can help you on how you can help people come to christ 
Now, this is not leading them to Christ. This is helping them. Phase two is bringing people to Jesus. That's the second phase. Both of them are important. This is more intentional. It's not less purposeful. When you help people, you still uh, have purpose. But when you're bringing people to Jesus, these people are interested in the message. Before, I'm helping them to come. I'm not really interested now. But all of a sudden, maybe they're sick or a baby dies or they get old and they're beginning to think about their mortality and they're interested. And now you can can begin to bring them to Christ. Now, let me talk to you today about stage three, which is leading people to Jesus. Leading people to Jesus. Now, what's distinctive between leading people to Jesus and bringing someone to Jesus? And here it is. When you lead someone to Jesus, they are convicted of their sins. They are under conviction. Have you ever been under conviction? I have. In fact, if you've never been under conviction, you're not a Christian. I remember uh, I was preaching years ago to my teenagers up in Virginia. And I had a young person, uh, a young guy, I really liked him in my youth department up there. And... Uh, he raised his hand that he, he needed to make a decision. So after it was over, I dismissed the kids. They went to play a game. I took him back to a little room side and, and talked to him. And uh, I said, well, hey, I noticed you responded. Can, can I help you? And he kind of fidgeted around. And he said, boy, he said, Rick, I feel like I've been arrested. <laughs> I feel like I've been arrested. And when he said that, I thought, what a great definition for being under conviction. It's exactly what it is. Let me tell you what it is. It's when you're sitting in church and a preacher preaches and they begin to give the invitation or before they give the invitation and you stand up and all of a sudden you just want to grab something and your knuckles turn white or you don't want to grab something because you're shaking. We had a service years ago and right back here in the back section, I, I had invited a, a friend of mine to come to the service and it was on a Father's Day and I preached and uh I made sure he sat by some friends of mine because I was preaching. And my my friends told me, they said, boy, he was under conviction. I said, well, how do you know? They said, oh, you should have seen him, Rick. They said, the whole time. They said, you got into preaching. And he got up and he began to sit up on, we had pews back then. He sat up on the edge of, out of his seat. And he just began to, he began to shake his legs like this. He put his hands out and he began to shake his legs like that. Now, people, people respond to it different, but the whole thing is that that whole matter where you feel like the Spirit of God ha- has cornered you. Almost like God told the preacher some things about you, and you're the only one in the room. You have your Bible open to John 16. Notice what it says in John 16, 7. Jesus said in there, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient. That's just an older word. It just means better to your advantage. He's about to leave. He's about to be crucified. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, one of his titles, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And notice what one of the jobs of the Comforter is. And when he has come, now look at this, he will reprove the world of sin. Underline that. Reprove. He will reprove or circle it and out in the margin, 
Connect a line and write convict. That's what the word means. He will convict. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. Dr. Porter taught me this. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his job. Whenever you talk to unsaved people about sin, they get under conviction. When you talk to them about righteousness, they get under conviction because they're unrighteous. When you talk to them about judgment, they get under conviction because they're going to have to stand before a holy God and give an account for their sin. And they have an eternal soul. He will, he will reprove the world. He will reprove people of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, we have today, we have some, some preachers, and not all of them, but many of them are young preachers that think because of their persuasive skills or personality or their ability to frame an argument, that, they have, that, that they're able to bring conviction. But it's not their job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And no matter how powerful they are, how persuasive they are, or how smart they are, it is the Holy Spirit's job. That means if you're here, you're simple. If you present the gospel to someone, you never present it alone. And while you speak on the outside, and you say, did you know the Bible says you've sinned against God? The Holy Spirit is speaking to them on the inside. That's right, you sin. And everything you say on the outside, the Holy Spirit is affirming on the inside. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and he began to preach to the people, they had a mighty response. But the reason for the response was not because of the giftedness of Peter. Up until that time, Peter was a coward. But Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had the power of God upon him. When he had the power of God upon him, then the Holy Spirit was free to work through him and convict people, not because of his ability, but because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. And the Bible says during that sermon, Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, when they heard the sermon, now watch this, they were pricked in their heart. Watch this. They were pricked in their heart. That means that preaching precedes conviction. Witnessing precedes conviction. They've got to hear the word before they're convicted. When they heard the truth, they were pricked in their heart. The word pricked there is a, is a powerful word. It, it, it has the, the Greek has the idea of, of horses stampeding their, their hooves on the ground. It's a loud sound. It's a thunderous noise, but, it, but it's your heart. When they heard the truth, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, because the others were witnessing too, watch this, men and brethren, what shall we do? They didn't have to twist their arms. I've been taught methods, sales methods for evangelism. That when you sit down with people and you say, well, now, have you sinned? So that they will agree with you. You want them to know that they've sinned. So when you ask them, have they sinned? You nod. Have you sinned? And then they'll nod. Well, that's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not, that's not the Spirit of God working. And so we, on a human level, we've been taught all of these kind of tricks. Maybe you haven't. But I've heard some of this. Some of these, these, these human 
deceptive things. And that's why we don't have, we don't have true converts. Because, listen, if it's true that, that witnessing precedes conviction, then conviction precedes conversion. If you've never been under conviction, you've never been saved. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you, you, uh, you're a church member, but you've never been saved. You, you, you say, well, I can't ever remember being under conviction. Well, you need to be saved. I was preaching on, on conviction one Sunday morning, probably 25 years ago. And we had a man that uh, had grown up in church. And I, I barely finished the sermon. He ran. He ran down that aisle right down here. And I went down to meet him. He said, I'm not saved. I just listened to you preach, and I just realized I've never been under conviction. And I remember, I remember thinking later, I remember thinking, well, I'm, I'm really not surprised. He's a little bit ornery, a little bit of a troublemaker, caused some trouble. He probably needed to be saved. You know, the heavier the load of sin, the heavier the level of conviction. When Jesus was dealing with the, the woman at the well, called in, I'm sorry, the woman called in adultery, not the woman at the well. And uh, John chapter 8 and verse 9, they which heard it, remember the religious leaders were around this lady, he said, "You, you whither which out sin casts for stone, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, and pay attention to this. They went out one by one individually, beginning at the eldest. Isn't that interesting? You know who left first? The oldest, the one with the heaviest guilt, even to the last, to the youngest. And then Jesus was left alone." See, the gospel's good news. We have a, a great message. What a privilege we have to give people. And people aren't interested. Listen, they're not interested in the good news because they don't know the bad news. I, I'm not going to run to something if I don't know there's bad news. We'll show you that in a moment. And I think we, we hurry. We hurry sometimes to get somebody, and there's a delicate matter here. We hurry to get them in the kingdom of God. But we don't understand that they're not under conviction. They don't even want to be saved. Well, don't you want to be saved? Don't you want to pray? Well, here, I'll, I'll help you. I remember being a youth pastor. I'd seen this happen when I, we, I was in two Christian schools. And... Uh, I'd have a number of people, kids that would come by the office and they'd want to talk to me. And they would, uh, they'd say, Brother Rick, I'm doubting my salvation. And I think most of those kids were saved, but some of them had never been saved. And I would sit down with them and go through with them. So when we had kids, I told Paul, I said, we will not, we will not pressure our kids to be saved. I said, for our kids to be saved, they're going to they're come to us. And we're going to present the gospel to them. But they're going to come to us. We'll be sensitive to them. And, and, and maybe we'll ask them. We'll be aware of the situation. I mean, it's not like, we're, no, no, we're not going to talk to you. You've got to have all the answers. It wasn't like that. 
And I think you can be, I've heard people being three. It's very unusual. But I've heard people being very young when they get saved. So I'm not saying you can't. But I think if you grow up in a gospel environment and, and you, you, you have not been under conviction, and this is not trying to deal with church members here, but I'm ending up dealing with it. Maybe God wants me to. But sometimes we deal with sinners that are not convicted of their sins. Now, you can show a person how to be saved in, in different ways. I talked to Daniel. Y'all did a little bit of this last week. You can do it in a single verse. You can use a Bible story. You can use Luke 15. One of my favorite ways is just to use a Bible story. Hey, let me show you a story. Just read Luke 15. Give them the gospel. Read John 3 and Nicodemus. And then get to John 3, 16. You can use a single verse. You can use the Romans road. There's a lot of ways. My favorite verses is Romans 6.23. I use it in funerals all the time. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You get saved through that. Four things you got to know, and you need to communicate this. Number one, that we've broken God's law by sinning against God's command. God is holy, and you are not. And if you don't tell them that, you see, if they say, well, I don't believe that, okay, that's fine. You may walk away. Don't feel like a failure. CPR. That may sit on them for a month. And the greatest kindness you ever did to them is to let them know that they're a sinner. Now, you need to do it lovingly and tenderly and graciously because you're a sinner too. Not in a self-righteous way. But we've all broken God's law. And I always, when I deal with this, this is not a training time, but I always make myself the sinner first. But, and then the second thing is the penalty for sin is death and hell. And finally, this is where sin, or excuse me, conviction begins to settle in upon their heart. Because you can't get, you can't get saved until you're lost. And they've got to understand this. That because of that, God loves you, but he hates sin. And he can't allow unholy people and holy things to come into heaven. And you show them, show them the scriptures. If you've flown a lot, you know what happens. They close the doors and then the, the steward, or whatever they call them now, the tenants get up there and they hold up the little things. And if you fly a lot, you don't even pay attention to them. You know what they're going to say. And the seat, the cushion can be used as a flotation device. Blah, blah, blah. And it's going to fall down and put it on yourself before you help somebody. Blah, blah, blah. Pull out the card in front of you. How many even know what I'm talking about? Right. Now, don't raise your hand now. But how many of you listen? Now, some of, some of you do because you have a temperament that does. Well, maybe they change. And you can follow the lights, and the, the doors may be before you, they may be behind you, or they're over the wings. They go through all this stuff because you, you know what they're going to say, especially if you fly a lot. You know what they're going to say. So you say, well, I know, you know, the lights are on the floor. If there's smoke, I'll get down here, and I'll put the thing on my, and then if I, if I need it, I'll, I'm probably going to die anyhow, so I'm not going to need all this, but anyhow, I'll do all this. But, but now I'll ask you a question. 
What if, what if, what if they didn't do it then? They didn't do it pre-flight. What if they didn't do it until there was a problem? So mid-flight, they're going in a thunderstorm, and the plane sort of shakes and it drops. They put your seatbelts on, and instead of just standing up there real calm, instead of playing the video, they play a video of a nice person. They're holding on to something and saying, you pay attention for a minute. We got some trouble. The pilot has asked me, you're going you're gonna to put your little device down. You're, you're going to watch everything they tell you, even if you're saved. But it's just in case, because there's a problem here. I may have to use this stuff. And if you don't get to the second part of the gospel that you've broken God's law by sinning against them, they're not going to pay attention to you. If there's no conviction, they're not paying attention. They do not appreciate forgiveness until they sense their need of it. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think we, we have a whole generation of lost church members that have never been forgiven. And I'm afraid sometimes we usher people thinking into the kingdom because they're not under conviction of sin. And then the next part we give them is Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross. And uh, salvation is free. He did it. Jesus paid it all. And then uh, it's a free gift. Salvation, forgiveness is a free gift. And we simply lead them to Jesus. We take them to Jesus. We get out of the way. We lead them to Jesus and bring them to Christ. Now, I, I really went through that fast, but that's leading them to Jesus. There's some intentionality to hear. You start with your children. We taught you evangelism, F-R-A-N, friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors, friends, relatives, co-workers, and neighbors. You start with your, your network, witness to strangers, everybody, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The Bible teaches a Jerusalem principle. And you're going to be held most accountable for those in your network. Now, stage four, and I'm just going to mention this, give you a few things here, is winning people to Jesus. Winning people to Jesus. The Bible talks about winning people to Jesus in Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. We're familiar with this verse. He that winneth souls is wise. Would you notice the first part of the verse? The fruit of the righteous is his tree of life. We don't read that part. We focus on the second part. He that winneth souls is wise. And he is. If you win people to Christ, you're wise. But the fruit of the righteous, the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. The fruit of, the, the fruit of a Christian is not love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of a Christian is another Christian. But notice what it says. The fruit of the righteous is his tree. In other words, when you win someone to Jesus, you're winning a tree. You're going to win someone that's going to win another one and another one and another one and another one. And you've got to train them. You're making disciples that make disciples. Proverbs 11.30 is not just about individual evangelism. It's about making disciples. The difference, now watch this, the difference in leading someone to Jesus and winning someone to Jesus is huge. When you win someone to Jesus, it implies a battle. There's spiritual warfare. And let me illustrate this. When I was in college, one of my friends, one Sunday afternoon, he worked in children's church 
in a, in a local church in the area. And uh, I had gotten home from my ministry, and he had gotten home from his. And so well, he, I said, how'd things go today? And one of my flaws, and I really do mean this, is I take things literal. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's terrible. Because words mean things. The words mean things. So if you say something, I take it, well, that means something. So, well, I, I, uh, I want a child of Christ today. Now, I was only 19 years old when he said this. He said, I want a child of Christ today. I never said anything to him. And you're going to think I was a legalist, and I was. But, but there's a difference. And I never said anything to him, but here's what I thought. You didn't win him. You didn't cry over him. You didn't bring him to church. You didn't do anything but open your Bible. You preached a sermon he walked down the aisle. You led him to the Lord. You didn't want him to the Lord. Somebody else wanted him to the Lord. Somebody else prayed over him. Somebody else wept over him. Somebody else taught him the Bible. You had a part. There's a di- Listen, and, and my whole purpose of it is this. I didn't tell him any of that. Unless you'd be afraid to talk to him, you don't be. But here's the thing. There's a difference in leading and winning. When you win somebody, because you can lead people. It's just like pulling, oh, there's one, there's ripe fruit. When you win somebody, there's a struggle. Number one, there, there's, there's persuasion. Persuasion. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It means to convince with passion. It has the idea of urgency. To convince with passion. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And there's some emotion here. There's a sense of urgency. One of the missing factors in evangelism is our compassion and our weeping. There's no urgency. You see, when, when, when you want to win somebody, it's not my uncle. There's an urgency. You're having heart surgery in less than 12 hours. They're going to cut you open and, and splice you open and stop your heart. I got to know. I didn't just stroll in there. It troubled me all week. There's a persuasiveness. Psalm 126 and verse 5, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. You know what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment? There's going to be weeping. As we see people that we know cast into hell. And I think this verse is going to be reversed. They that sow in joy shall reap in tears. Because on this earth we've had so much fun. We've sown... So much joy in the things that we've done, but we're going to reap all of the wasted time and all of the fun we've had. We're going to reap in tears. But the Bible says right now we need to sow in tears so that one day we can reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth. He that goeth forth and weepeth. By the way, you, you go before you weep. Some of you say, well, preacher, I don't have the burden. You got to go. You got to look. You got to observe. You got to pay attention. Look at your boss. Look at your classmate. Look at your teammate. Look at these people. You got to go. 
you got to go. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed with him, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And I've got this in my Bible. Going, weeping, sowing, reaping. Going, weeping, sowing, that is the word of God, and reaping. That's that's the formula. Going, weeping, sowing, reaping. The Bible says in Jude, in verse 22, and of some have compassion, making a difference. You cannot be a, a soul winner. You cannot... Win people. You cannot persuade people with apathy in your life. Persuasion is not a gift. It's a result of a burden. I was trying to minister to a young man. And uh, he was about to make some bad decisions in his life. (coughs) Excuse me. I was so concerned for him. He was just about to do some really stupid things. And uh, my heart just broke for him. And uh, he changed his mind. So he, he was up in Virginia one time. I said, why don't, you, why don't you just give your testimony to our kids? And he said, sure, I will. So he gave his testimony to the kids. He said, I remember one time I was over at Rick's house. And he said, uh, I was going to make some really bad decisions for my life. And he said, Rick began to talk to me. But he said, I didn't care what he said. And then I forgot this next part. I didn't remember, but this is what he said. He said, but then he began to cry. And he said, when he cried, I couldn't say no. He said, when he began to weep over me, I couldn't say no. This is winning people. This is winning your child. This is caring People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Not only persuasion, but praying. Praying for people. Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire and my prayer for my child. My heart's desire and my prayer for my husband. My heart's desire and my prayer for whoever it is. But there's got to be a heart's desire, not just a prayer. Do you have a prayer list for people? Is there, is there a burden there? Is there warfare involved? Are you trying to win them? This is not, you just can't lollygag through this. And then it involves fasting. It involves fasting. A father came to Jesus in Matthew 17. His son was not physically sick. He was possessed by the devil. The Bible says, when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and off into the water. The devil was trying to kill him, so it was happening. And pay attention to this church. I brought him to the disciples. And watch this. I have this underlined. They could not. They could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the devil. He departed out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. And then later in the day, the disciples came to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we? Remember, it says they could not. Lord, why could not we cast him out? Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, which is smaller than you can put it on the top of your pinky and you can barely see it. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say into this mountain, remove hence to yonder place. In other words, it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your God. And this obstacle, when you trust in a great God with a little faith, God will move that obstacle, remove hence to yonder faith, and it shall remove. Nothing shall be impossible to you. How be it? Now watch this. This kind, notice that expression, this kind, this kind of problem, this kind of situation, this kind of, of demonic influence goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Every time in the Bible fasting is used, it's always associated with prayer. This kind doesn't leave but by prayer and fasting. This is warfare. This is warfare. Are you concerned enough about your lost family member that you have fast for them? What is your this kind? Have you just given up on them? Do you have a lost son? Do you have a lost daddy? Do you have a lost brother? Do you have a lost uncle? Do you have a lost boss? Would you fast for them? Fasting is letting go of the physical so you could lay hold on the spiritual. To fast a meal... Not just to prove God you're sincere. That's not the point. It's to lay, let go of the physical so you can lay hold on the spiritual. And dedicate what you would be doing with the physical to spiritual things. To the word of God in prayer. To say, God, I, I need you to help me. This kind goeth not out but by fasting and by prayer. One day when we stand before Jesus, we will or we will not receive a reward, as it said in 1 Corinthians 3, based on what we've done with CPR, on the kind of witnesses we've been. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, what is our hope for joy, our crown of rejoicing that you can win at the judgment seat? Are not even yet the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, you, you people, For ye are our glory and joy. Daniel 12, 3. And they that be wise. Remember, he that winneth souls is wise. And they that shall be wise shall shine as a firmament. That's the atmosphere. It's the sky. As a brightness of firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness. As the stars forever and ever. You know what some people believe? They believe it will be like a light bulb in heaven because the brightness of your color. Revelation talks about your garments like this. The brightness of your, of your countenance, the brightness of your clothing will be part of your reward and will indicate the kind of Christian you were. And Daniel 12, 3 indicates the brightness will reflect what kind of witness and involvement you were. I believe in CPR. Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 
the four and twenty elders. It speaks of the twelve in the Old Testament, twelve in the New, the Old and New Testament, the universe, basically. They fall down before Christ, Him that sat on the throne, and worship Him that liveth forever and ever, and watch what they do, and we'll be in this crowd. And will cast their crowns, cast their crowns that they've won before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Are you going to have anything to cast before Jesus one day? Well, you can if you'll get involved in CPR. This is not just about you. This is about what you'll have to give to Jesus one day. I have a preacher friend, and he had three boys. Every Sunday morning, they'd get ready for church, and he would come by, and he'd say, okay, boys. And he'd give them a quarter, two quarters, 50 cents, whatever, to put in the offering that day. He said, one day, he said, I just forgot. I got busy. My mind was on the sermons and problems at church. I just forgot. Getting ready to leave for church. I was sweeping by the church, the house to get everybody out to the car. And he said, I saw my oldest boy. He was probably six years old. And he was laying on the bed weeping. And I went in there and I said, Son, what's wrong? Are you okay? And he'd forgotten to give the money to his son to put in the offering. And he looked up with tear stained cheeks and he looked at his daddy. He said, Daddy, I don't have anything to give to Jesus today. My preacher friend said, it's so stuck in my heart that I don't want to be able to say, Jesus, I don't have anything to give you today. Would you bow your heads with me today?